Master Hakun's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water, no ice, outside us, no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water, crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and past clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, and going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is the 20th of April, 2021, and we're going to again be reading a little from River of Fire, River of Water, an introduction to the Pure Land tradition of Shin Buddhism by Tai Tetsu Unno, and um, we've done some introductory material in in the first two talks, so we'll just launch directly into the into our chapter that we're going to read from and and sort of hang a whole bunch of different things off of. Uh, This chapter is called All is a Circle. The universal symbol of wholeness is the circle and its variance. Sphere, disc, ring, orbit, wheel, globe, mandala. This is true of the world when we look around us. 
Flowers, plants and trees are full of curves, all seeking the rays of the sun. Graceful human movements are circular or spherical in dance, ritual motion, athletics, martial arts, tea ceremony, floral arrangement. Games of all sorts use some form of round object, basketball, tennis ball, golf ball, bowling ball. System thinkers assert that reality is made up of circles, but we see straight lines. The universe consists of whirlpool galaxies, planetary orbits, and the diurnal cycle. And of course, the planets themselves, especially the Earth and the Moon and the Sun, our star, and the sky itself, When we, when we look at the horizon, we see the curve in it. I was reflecting on this, um, getting ready for Taisho, and um, wondering what the first circle we witness as babies is. And I wonder if it might be the human eye. And what sees it is the human eye. So right there, a circle completed. There's a very fine... Um, evolutionary cosmologist Brian Swin who um, has written some from wonderful books and um, also uh, made a, um, an audiovisual um, series on, on making really on bringing alive all the, the discoveries of science um, and both in terms of cosmological discoveries and biological ones, evolutionary ones. And um, when he talks about the eye, and he says that when we see something, we are using the same processes that were discovered by the chlorophyll molecule. This the chlorophyll molecule captures tiny uh, captures photons in order to, to do photosynthesis and the the light that it captures is in this very very narrow narrow band if you can say the the radiation of all kinds is as wide as my hands well it's just a little tiny fraction of that and it's called this the the visible visible spectrum because it's it's this same band that we see with our eye. And it turns out that the retinal molecule in our eye is very closely related in structure to the chlorophyll molecule. And he says, he points out, nature reuses what works. And he, then he says, the sensitivity in my eyes is diffusely present all over the oak tree. Joshua was asked, why 
did Bodhidharma come from the West? And he said, the oak tree in the courtyard. Meister Eckhart famously said, the eye with which I see God is the same eye with which God sees me. My eye and God's eye is one eye and one sight and one knowledge and one love. To, to see the circles that appear in nature um, these are really primal experiences whether it's the sun or the moon uh, a pool of water water tends to, to circularity or a raindrop Seventy-five percent of our brain is water. Here's what Master Dogen says about water. Water is not hard, not soft. It is not wet nor dry. does not move nor stand still. It's not cold or warm. Not being and not nothing. Not delusion, not realization. When it freezes, it is harder than diamond and no one can break it. When it melts, it is softer than milk and cannot be destroyed. That is why it is perfect. Water is everywhere. Think about this and look into it thoroughly, but don't do it as someone who's, who's seeing the water thinks about it. No. The water thinks as it sees the water. The water gives birth to the water. The water realizes water. The self meets the self and goes along with it on its way. It's the, um, the moisture in our eye that gives it, um, gives it its sparkle. Perhaps few things more intimate than looking into another person's eyes, gazing into those depths. Very small babies have eyes like oceans. Vast and wide. You It's in consciousness, you could say, that the universe comes into being. 
before there were eyes in the world, you can go, don't have to go back that far, about a billion years or so, when there were just prokaryotes, water wasn't yet blue or golden or any of the other colours that it can bring forward. Though the prokaryotes could re respond to um, heat and moisture, they had no eyes. Came across a, um, a, a whakatauki, te torino haere whakamua, whakamure, muri. And this means at the same time as the spiral is going forward, it is also returning. Nature is full of, of circles processes that that run in a circular fashion and many examples one could give but here's just one that that impresses me particularly and and is is made more alive by a recent visit to some limestone caves limestone is formed from the compressed bodies of marine organisms that died in waters of ancient seas and then settled in their trillions on those seabeds. These creatures once built their skeletons and shells out of calcium carbonate, metabolizing the mineral content of the water in which they lived to create intricate architectures. One phase in a dynamic earth cycle whereby mineral becomes animal, becomes rock, rock that in deep time will eventually supply the calcium carbonate out of which new organisms will build their bodies, thereby nourishing the same cycle. Thereby nourishing the same cycle into being again. To, to um, see the... the, the uh, stalagmites and stalactites that form in limestone caves um, because of the uh, um, water that passes through the limestone is to be able to look into deep time. It's something like it's something like a, a millimeter is deposited on these these structures in a hundred years. So you're literally looking at at um, thousands of years of these big old stalagmites and stalactites or more. Rilke said, in a certain sense, any expenditure of strength is always an increase in strength. 
for in reality everything reduces itself ultimately to a circle. All the strength we give out comes back to us in the end, changed and intensified. He could be talking about karma here. It's a pretty good metaphor for karma. What goes around comes around. But it's also really pointed encouragement for us in the efforts we make in our practice, in our, in our um, work of different kinds that we do, that we're to remember that ultimately everything that we give out comes back, changed and intensified. No, no effort is lost. And where could it go? Dogen elaborates on this. He says, On the great road of Buddha ancestors, there is always unsurpassable practice, continuous and sustained. It forms the circle of the way and is never cut off. Between aspiration, practice and awakening, there's not a moment's gap. Continuous practice is the circle of the way. This being so, continuous practice conform, confirms you as well as others. It means your practice affects the entire earth and the entire sky in the ten directions. Although not noticed by others or by yourself, it is so. The philosopher Thomas Berry, who... Um, was a was a primary influence on the work of, of Brian Swim. He was once asked, "What do you believe in?" and and he said, "I believe in the curvature of space time." Continuing with our text. When our son was two, this is Ono speaking, when our son was two and a half years old, he drew an almost perfect circle on a small blackboard put up for him. It was amazing for one so young to do this, so I took a snapshot of his drawing. Some years later, when I showed it to a Jungian analyst, he remarked that anyone so young who can draw a near perfect circle is well grounded in wholeness. And no, no matter what happens later in life, even if he goes astray at times, he will always return to the centre. Not bad information for a parent to hear. And um, give it a try. It's not an easy thing to do, to, to um, draw a really um, perfect circle. Um, when uh, uh, Chapin Mill was first built, um, one of the members of the centre there was was um, asked to create an ENSO um, for a very large ENSO, um, taller than a person, for a particular hanging about outside the canoe room. And um, we had her, her reject up here at this, not here, I think it was at um, Par Road for a, quite a long time. 
one of her rejects, but she, the one that she finally did was a near-perfect circle. And she, but she'd had years of training, not only as an artist, but as an Alexander technique teacher, which all the movements in the Alexander technique are based on, on circle. He continues, when I was in my 30s, I took up Aikido because I was fascinated with its non-violent philosophy. I soon learned that all Aikido movements are spherical. It does not teach any offensive techniques such as kicks, blows, strikes or thrusts. The purpose of training is to become like a round ball, curbing our angular, linear, elastic movements. The same holds for Tai Chi Chuan, which is a more deliberate version of Aikido. They share a common philosophy based on centering ambidextrous movements and flowing together with the key of the universe, or qi in Chinese energy, the universe, life force. Violence is inevitable in a dualistic encounter between the attacker and attacked. In contrast, Aikido is based on non-duality, that is, the attacker is absorbed into the swift spherical movements of the one attacked. The attacker and the attacked become one. This is the reason that one never hears of Aikido contests or tournaments to determine who is the best, that's not to say that it isn't challenging physically. Um, one does a lot of tumbling, a lot of falling down in Aikido. Um, we have a friend who did Aikido for years, but eventually he, he um, got tired of all the falling down and switched to Tai Chi, which he's still doing. I don't know if it still is, but it, um, it used to be that Tai Chi was um, funded by the ACC uh, because um, it protects older people against falls and it can be practiced well into old age. Um, and it does, it, it, it does it protects people, I'm guessing, against falls because it enhances one's, the exercises enhance one, one's physical stability, the, the, the key energy is gathered into this, this, the hara. So one um, becomes more like one of those roly-poly dolls that, that comes to, to upright more easily, which is incidentally, these dolls are um, bodhidharmas in Japan, daruma dolls. Um, in the West, they're often depicted as, as being a fool with a fool's hat on it, which I think is an interesting um, parallel since the fool or the clown um, also does a lot of falling down and getting up. In his absorbing little book, Everyday Suchness, Gyome Kubose founder of the Chicago Buddhist Temple, 
reflects on a small, smooth stone he found while being confined in the internment camp in Wyoming during the Second World War. He writes, In this round stone, I feel a peaceful, harmonious and perfect character, a character acquired through many years of hardships. As I feel its smoothness and roundness, I know that it was not so in the beginning. It must have had many sharper corners when it was cracked off from the mother stone and began its long journey down the rivers and creeks, enduring the heat, the rainstorms, and the freezing Wyoming winters. For how long, it is hard to tell, perhaps for thousands of years, and as it was rolled and tossed with the other rocks and stones, it was polished, and the sharp corners disappeared. Uh, we sense here in, in this this description, um, this, this man's um, kashanti paramita, his forbearance. The, the Japanese who were um, imprisoned during the war quite unjustly um, were mostly, I um, think, from the coasts, so being sent to, to Wyoming with its harsh, desolate winters living in, in uninsulated huts and virtual concentration camps uh, would have been very, very rough on them. And they were forced to leave um, most of their possessions behind them. And yet he has this, um, Kubose has the, the humility to um, allow a round pebble uh, to become his teacher. He says, um, this is Uno talking of Kubose. He says, he reflects on the stone and speaks with the voice of a person truly attuned to nature. As I see many sharp corners and roughness in me, I feel that I am much smaller and inferior to the stone. This little stone on my desk is indeed a great teacher to me. To, to aspire to um, work on oneself, to become round like a stone, is, is um, a, a bodhisattva impulse, recognized in, in um, the way of the bodhisattva as a, as a, as a very important practice um, that can be conducted in, under all kinds of adverse circumstances. The image of um, uh, pe pebbles being t being uh, tumbled together is is often an image that's often used to describe the life of uh, living in a monastery or tr or training centre. Um, Almost, almost sort of a, a, a cliche um, image. Um, I came across uh, something by Edward S. B. Brown on this. He's the, the author of the Tassahara Bread Book and the uh, Tassahara Cookbook. 
his 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 bread making book was actually the f very first exposure I ever had to Zen when I was a teenager on holiday with a, with a friend of mine and she had the book and we were experimenting with baking the different kinds of breads that were were um, described in the book but he says he says this um, people living together in a meditation community are like rocks in a tumbler spinning round and round constantly bumping into one another the rocks get worn down smoothed polished sometimes we would joke about it some say polished some say ground the process itself is not always a pleasant one not pleasant having your edges knocked off but there was no escaping it no matter how hard we tried family life life in this world can also polish us or it can grind us down which will it be According to informed sources, among the 550 Native American languages, there is not a single word for religion, but we find constant references to the circle and to holy power. The circle is a part of everyday life, teepee, sacred pipe, purification lodge, sun dance, ceremonial disc, and sacred wheel patterns. And holy power Wakantanka is found in man, tree, buffalo, rock, sacred pipe, and so on. One of the most popular religious texts among college students today is Black Elk Speaks, as, a rec as recorded by John Nehart. Um, I don't know if it still is popular among, among uh, university students, but it was certainly something that we read about that time in our, t in our early 20s. Black Elk shouldered the destiny of his people in the face of Wasichu's destruction of his culture. Wasichu is a um, Lakota word for non-Indians, non-Native Americans. So their, their, their culture was virtually destroyed by, by colonizers. He ultimately failed to protect them, but the impact of his spirituality still affects many people today. Among his recollections is the reference to um, his Oglala Sioux nation as the sacred hoop. You have noticed that everything an Indian does is in a circle, and that is because the power of the world always works in circles. The sky is round, and I have heard that the earth is round like a ball, and so are all the stars. The wind, in its greatest power, whirls. Birds make their nests in circles, for theirs is the same religion as ours. The sun comes forth and goes down again in a circle. The moon does the same, and both are round. Our teepees were round like the nests of birds, and these were always set in a circle, 
the nation's hoop, a nest of many nests, where the great spirit meant for us to hatch our children, but the wasichus have put us in these square boxes. No comments. Black, hair, black elk here contrasts the circle expressing the vitality of his people with the square boxes suffocating their life. Besides imagery of the circle, Black Elk's story contains numerous references to the number four. He speaks of four directions, four seasons, four parts of a plant, four parts, periods of life, four chiefs, four horses, and so on. Long list. The intimate relationship between the number four and the circle was noted by Carl Jung when he saw this pattern recurring in the drawings of his patients in the process of individuation. They invariably drew variations of a circle with four parts, a pattern basic to the mandala. Jung went on to discover the mandalas as a common symbol in the world cultures, Native American in alchemy, medieval Christianity, Taoism, Hinduism, and Buddhism. Um, could add, add in here um, one that we were talking about on uh, Sunday and Earth Day, a uh, more recent kind of set of categories. Um, those to do with, which break the earth up into four spheres, nested spheres, the lithosphere, the hydrosphere, the atmosphere, and the biosphere. We were also talking on on uh, on Sunday about. The, the great acceleration, this in great intensification of human um, effects on the on the environment, and I'd like to read a little bit from an article that that was given to me last week, called "From Anthropocene to Noosphere: The Great Acceleration," and um, we haven't got time to go into it in, in too much detail, but. I'll just give a, a summary which the author gives at the beginning of the of the article, which gives us the overview and then, then read some, some short passages. And the author is Boris um, Shoshitashvili, uh, based at, um, at Berkeley at University in California, but his name sounds like a Georgian name. His, in his summary, he writes... Since 1950, humanity has accelerated its population growth, energy use, and release of greenhouse gases, along with a variety of other environmentally and socio-economically significant trends. Taken together, this set of accelerated human-driven trends has been called the Great Acceleration, and its occurrence helps explain recent climate change and ecological disturbance. In this article, I explore two dominant but divergent paradigms for what is happening to our species as it becomes globalized and continues in the great acceleration. 
One of the, the paradigms is related to the newly proposed geological epo epoch of the Anthropocene, the age of the human being, which sees the great acceleration as a rupture in our relationship to the Earth system. The other paradigm centers around the concept of a newosphere, a sphere of thought, and proposes that human beings are forming a planetary awareness through these interlocking and accelerating trends. So on the one hand, we have, we have this, this Anthropocene, which has been, I think, agreed to as the, as the, the new the age we're in now, um, following on from Holocene. But it's the other one that I want to explore a little um, this, this idea of a newosphere and what he writes here will explain this a little bit first of all the word the word designates a global topology of human awareness emerging through recent technological and cultural interconnection so um, the internet for instance the way in which um, the 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 uh, knowledge can now travel so fast, or at least information can travel travel very fast, and we can connect up in all kinds of ways that we weren't able to do before. And the sphere part, and so the the new, new the newest part comes from um, the Greek a Greek word for intelligence or knowledge. And then the other part is the sphere, and here we link to our theme of the circle. He writes, the sphere of the newosphere derives from the Greek sphira, which has a richer history than our abstract geometrical concept of sphere. From the 6th century before the Common Era through the Middle Ages, sphira was a key category of the geocentric model of the universe, which consisted of concentric spheres nested around the Earth. Each of the spheri enclosed different planets, and the movement of the spheres resulted in the planets' motion in their orbits. People may have also heard of the, the music of the spheres, the sound that was thought to be made by this, these movements of the spheres. Moreover, the relative positions of these celestial spheres marked, spheres marked spiritual significance a sphere having grating meaning the farther it was from the earth. The outermost spheres, such as the Empyrean, were imagined to be the dwelling places of the divine. This vision of a cosmos nested, of nested meaningful spheres with earth at the centre persisted for more than a millennium until it was disrupted by, in modernity, first in the Copernican revolution towards heliocentrism and then in the spatial relativization of the entire universe. An aspect of the traditional cosmology of the spheres survived the modern decentering of Earth and the universe in the current geochemical nomenclature, nomenclature. The concentric spheres have been reconceived as the constitutive elements of the Earth rather than greater layers of the entire cosmos. This nomenclature consists of a series of compound words ending with sphere, such as the lithosphere, the hydrosphere, as well as the more, f more familiar biosphere and atmosphere. So our Earth is this, this 
lump, this, this ball of, of rock, then it has the hydrosphere, that's the lithosphere, then the hydrosphere covers most but not all of it, um, and then we have the, the atmosphere, and then the biosphere, which penetrates all these different um, spheres. Roots go down into the, into the rock, um, leaves and branches come up into the air, um, and of course the, the plant also will draw, just to take that example, will, draws on the water that is in the, in the earth for its, for its life. And you could say that it, it, these four can be corresponded with the four elements because we have earth for solidity, um, hydrosphere for water, um, atmosphere for the air, and then all of the biosphere can only exist because of the sun. The fire of the sun is there, pleasant, is, is present in all um, living things on this planet, except for very, very few who live deep, deep, deep in the oceans. And even they wouldn't be there if it weren't for the sun. So, um, the, the new sphere is, is a fifth sphere. He says the newer sphere's potential is to bridge the ancient and modern and is located in the newest part of the compound word whose etymological origin is the Greek nous, meaning mind. The primary associations of nous are clearest by contrast with anthropos, that, that is in the anthropocene. Unlike anthropos, which in Greek often delimited the human being in opposition to the gods and their greater metaphysical significance, nous is precisely quality of soul and intellect that human beings share with the gods as well as with the ordered universe as a whole. And so this is proposed that, that the, the earth, this earth made up of these four different spheres, is, is, is held or um, even shaped by the sphere of the mind. And um, the author sees this as being very, a very um, helpful paradigm to have, not just the, the kind of the negative paradigm of the anthropos, which is, is, sees it as this, this rupture of, of nature, but rather um, the noose, which highlights the growing, he writes, the growing metaphysical and mental import of human interconnection in the great acceleration rather than the crisis of environmental rupture. The sphere of the mind is less familiar and easy, less easy to define than the prior geochemical spheres and the biosphere, but a material basis for the new sphere's development is suggested by the increasingly worldwide coverage of internet cables, mobile phones, satellite radio and television, in addition to many other tech technologies of interconnection. These collectively 
could be cited as early as illustrations of the newsphere's description of a global, global concentricity of interacting minds. And proponents of the newsphere may suggest that through humanity's ventures into space, this new mindful sphere is beginning to tentatively expand like itself, amoeba-like, beyond the Earth's atmosphere. But of course it's not new. This is, this is the, very, the very core of Buddhism, uh, this notion of, of mind, that, that everything, everything depends on mind. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, the mind, the mind, the mind. This is the beginning and end of it all. Again, the circularity. The quality of one's life depends on nothing but the mind. Near the end of the article, the, the author quotes another writer, Paul Critson, who was the atmospheric chemist who first coined the term Anthropocene 20 years ago. And he, he writes, Will the Anthropocene simply turn out to be a very short era in which humanity blindly careens forward, continuing to transform the Earth until the planet loses its capacity to support us? Or might humanity rise to the challenge becoming the reflective, thinking and proactive agent that transforms the biosphere into a newosphere and consciously striving to shape a niche for ourselves in a sustainable Anthropocene. So perhaps this concept, this, this um, um, uh, paradigm could, could balance the, the negativity of the Anthropocene and we could see this, this time of great peril as a time, an opportunity for we human beings to, to rise to uh, a, a more mature level of interacting with our uh, world. don't have much more time. Um, but I'd like to finish um, with a little bit more from Brian Swim. Uno quotes um, a well-known um, saying, the, 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 the version that, that I'm familiar with is, is a little different from his, but basically that, that God is a circle whose centre is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere.
and this this, um, this passage comes from a chapter, the last chapter in one of his books called The Centre of the Cosmos. The universe began as an eruption of space, time, matter and energy out of the all-nourishing abyss, the hidden source of all creativity. The universe began as a titanic bestowal, a stupendous quantum of free energy given forth from the bottomless vaults of generosity. The nature of this original gift goes so far beyond our daily human experiences that we must resort to numbers to approach it. In the first second, the universe is a million times hotter than the centre of our sun today. It is in an extremely compact form. The density of the original matter is a billion times greater than rock, and yet this primordial matter is exploding forth as rapidly as the speed of light. Every place in the universe is at the centre of this exploding reality. From our place on Earth today, in the midst of the Virgo supercluster, all of the universe explodes away from us, just as it does from the perspective of anywhere one in the Perseus supercluster or anywhere else in the universe. We are at the unmoving centre of this cosmic expansion and we have been here at the centre from the beginning of time. The universe began here in a different form, one so hot no structures could yet exist. But as the expansion continued, the temperature slowly came down and the first assembled beings began to be appear, quarks, the constituents of the stable elementary particles, gathered together and formed protons and neutrons. Three minutes later, these in turn formed the first nuclei. After 300,000 years, the temperature dropped to 6,000 degrees, that of the surface of our sun today, and the universe transformed itself from nuclear particles to the first atoms of hydrogen and helium. This same spectacular transformation continued into the future, carrying these atoms into the form of the galaxies, and then into that of the molecules and cells, and then into the very form of the human and the elephant and the blue spruce and the Mississippi River. That which blossomed forth as cosmic egg 15 billion years ago now blossoms forth as oneself, as one's family, as one's community of living beings, as our blue planet, as our ocean of galaxy clusters. The same fertile source then and now, the same numinous energy then and now. To enter the omnicentric unfolding universe is to taste the joy of radical relational mutuality. For we know this body of ours could have been a giant sequoia. We know in a simple and direct way that we share the essence of, and so easily could have been, a migrating pelican. Our astonishment at existence becomes indestructible, and we are home again in the cosmos as we reach the conviction that we could have been an asteroid, or molten lava, or a man, or a woman, or taller or shorter, or angrier, or calmer, or more certain, or more hesitant, or more right or wrong. I have given some scientific detail in these chapters as a way of grounding this new cosmology in science's empirical and theoretical discoveries. But here at the end, it is important to understand that the centre of the cosmos is not mathematical science, 
nor is it inside science, nor is it owned by science. The centre of the cosmos is each event in the cosmos. Each person lives in the centre of the cosmos. Science is one of the careful and detailed methods by which the human mind came to grasp the fact of the universe's beginning. But the actual origin and birthplace is not a scientific idea. The actual origin of the universe is where you live your life. The primary challenge of this cosmological transformation of consciousness is the awareness that each being in the universe is an origin of the universe. The center of the cosmos refers to that place where the great birth of the universe happened at the beginning of time. But it also refers to the upwelling of the universe as river, as star, as raven, as you. The universe surging into existence anew. The consciousness that learns it is at the origin point of the universe. The consciousness that learns it is at the origin point of the universe is itself an origin of the universe. The awareness that bubbles up in each moment that we identify as ourselves is rooted in the originating activity of the universe. We are all of us arising together at the centre of the cosmos. And just to finish, 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 I promise, <laughs> with a poem called The Clay Jug, and this is by Kabir. Inside this clay jug are canyons and pine mountains and the makers of canyons and pine mountains. All seven oceans are inside and hundreds and millions of stars. The acid that tests gold is there and the one who judges jewels, and the music from the strings no one touches, and the source of all water. We sense that there is some sort of spirit that loves birds and animals and the ants, perhaps the same one who gave a radiance to you in your mother's womb. We'll stop there and recite the four vows. Without number, I vow to liberate endless flying passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain. Blind passions, I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow 
Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the